Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. How are y'all? Okay, all right. Tell you what, let's pray together. God, our Heavenly Father, as we open Your Word, I pray that You would reveal Yourself to us in it. That the that the written Word might illuminate for us the living Word, and that we might come to know You, our Father, in a greater way because of what we see in the pages of Your book. And Father, uh, help us to walk in the light uh, through, through Your Holy Spirit. For if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with You and with Jesus Christ, His Son. And Father, we, we want to walk in the light. So Father, we pray as, you, as we open Your Word this morning that You would shine the light of Your Word on us and to us uh, and for us so that we might see You more clearly. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me over to John's Gospel. On uh, chapter 1, last week we looked at the first five verses. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we've got some there in the back by the door. Uh, you can grab one and uh, you can actually keep that uh, as our gift to you. We would love for you to have a Bible. Um, and uh, if you're visiting with us this week, I'll be happy to give you one uh, and make sure that you have one to read. The very best Bible to get is any one that you will read. And apply to your life. So, um, so we want to put one in your uh, in your hands and encourage you to read it. Also, uh, by the way, if you're in our small group ministry and you're in a sermon-based small group, you'll notice uh, when you go through those questions, there's a couple things at the top that are different from what we've done in the past. Uh, one is that I'm going to encourage us all to memorize some Scripture together as our small groups. Uh, and the verse we're going to memorize for this month, the month of September, is John 1.1, which a lot of you already know. Uh, but the other thing we're going to do is share with each other each week uh, some things that you have read in your Bible this past week and give everybody an opportunity to do that, to share uh, what God is showing them in His Word. So... Uh, we'll do that this this uh, beginning today and um, and and continuing on through the year. We'll have opportunity to memorize some scripture and to uh, to share with each other. Now, John chapter one. We're going to pick up in verse six here. Uh, I'm going to read to you the first three verses, uh, but we'll go through verse eighteen all the way uh, here today. So. Uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, let me just clarify which John it is we're talking about. There are two, there, there are two guys that are prominent in the New Testament that are both named John. Uh, one is the writer of the gospel, John the Apostle, who also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uh, letters to the churches in around Ephesus, and also the book of Revelation. The other is John the Baptist, and John the Apostle is writing and describing the ministry of John the Baptist. We'll learn some more about him 
uh, next week. Uh, but he's talking, he's introducing for us who John the Baptist is. And all the gospel writers speak about this person, John the Baptist. He is the last of the Old Testament style prophets. Uh, in fact, in his manner of dress and manner of life, he, the prophet he most resembles is the prophet Elijah. Uh, he wears a, a camel, uh, camel hair robe, if you will, and has a leather belt around his waist. He lives in the wilderness. Uh, he eats uh, grasshoppers and wild honey, which apparently is nourishing, but doesn't sound very appealing to me. But that was his diet. Uh, he was an Old Testament style prophet. And uh, the last word from, uh, from God to his people Israel prior to uh, the coming of John is the prophet Malachi. Now Malachi writes, he's the last book in the Old Testament, he writes 400 years prior to John. And Malachi predicted in his book that there would, the next thing God would do would be to send the Messiah, and that before Messiah would come, God would send a forerunner so that nobody could miss the fact that Messiah had come. And if you look closely at verse 7, you'll find out what John's mission was. John's mission was to testify, uh, to be a witness to the person who is the light, so that people might believe in him. I don't miss this. John the Baptist, the point that, that John the Apostle is making in writing about John the Baptist, is that John the Baptist was the forerunner that Malachi predicted. Uh, he is telling us uh, something that no Jew would have anticipated. No one who is reading this gospel as a Jew would have anticipated that the person that, that John the Baptist identified as the Messiah is the same person, the same person he's just been talking about in the first five verses, uh, who is eternally existent and who is eternally existent in relationship with God and who is God and who is the one who created everything in the universe the person who is light and life the person he identifies as the word is the same person that John the Baptist said that's the Messiah and the reason that would have been a very radical and unexpected idea is this that the Jews were looking for someone who was merely a human king. And John says, well, yes, he is a human and he will be king, but he is also someone much greater than a, a mere human being. He is the Word of God who eternally existed and who created all things and who is a person who eternally existed in relationship with God and who brings light and life to every person. That person is the one that John identifies as the Messiah. We don't have his name yet. We're going to get it today. We're going to find out the name of this person. And we read in verse 8, He was not the light, that is, John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. In other words, I don't want anybody to be confused. John the Baptist was a great man and a great prophet. He was. But he was not the Messiah. And his job was to point out the presence of the Messiah when he came. Now, let me, let me just 
um, say something about this. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to sell a house or anything like that. When when we when we moved here uh, from from Iowa several years ago, uh, we tr- we had a house to sell, and the realtor would come in, right, and they would show people the house, and eventually one of these families that came by bought it. Well, one thing they did not do as they went in was point out the light to people. They didn't say, and you'll notice, this house has fully functional lights. And they are in fact on right now. Right? No one does that. That would be weird. Right? Well, of course the lights are on. I can see that the lights are on. Who needs to be told that the lights are on? People who are blind and can't see. Right? So why did John need to point out the presence of the light? Because people were blind and couldn't see who had come. Amen? They, 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 They were looking for someone different than the person who showed up. And so John's ministry was necessary. He's like the advanced team, you know, before the president would come on a on a state visit. And then you have, you know, in, in the in the old days, you know, they would have uh, someone who served as a herald to announce someone's coming. And you know, you'd have the trumpets blow, da 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 da, right? And then you have, um, you know, presenting. You know, the Lord and Lady of Somerset or whatever, right? And, and you would have these people announced, right? Well, that was John's job. He was to say, behold, the Messiah. Here He is. Here He is. And the reason that he needed to point Him out is because otherwise people were blind to the light and they could not see who He was. That was His job. Was to point out who the light is. And let me, John uh, the Apostle writes some more about that in the following verses. So let's look at them. Verses uh, 9 through 13 together. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 9 is interesting. Uh, John is telling us here that the word he's been describing is the true light. And again, in John, particularly in the prologue here, the first chapter, the first several verses uh, of this book, the words that he uses are very, very important. I don't usually spend a lot of time highlighting uh, the meaning of particular Greek words, but this one, when he's talking about the true light, is very important. Because he means true, not just in the sense of genuine, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to fake. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he, he, means, he means that, but not just that, that Jesus, that, that Jesus, the Word, is the true light, but also in the sense of the ultimate light, the 
final light, the best revelation of light from God. The true light is coming into the world. And what John is describing with this is, this is John's description of the act of the incarnation, where God invades our world. Or as I've titled this message, the light invades the darkness. That, the, that God is coming into the world. And it's not, the, and, and by the way, the word that he uses there for world, again, the words here are important, is, is a word in John that has the idea of not such a big world or such an interesting world, but such a wicked world. That the true light is coming into the dark and sinful and corrupted world that is not any longer the way that God made it. That there's an invasion happening of God Himself into a darkened world. And He is the true light. He is coming in. The Word of God has invaded the darkness and it enlightens everyone. Now, not in the sense of making everyone believe, but in the sense of, you know, like you go down into a musty basement and you turn on the lights and you reveal what is hidden in the dark. You turn on the lights and you can see what is down there. And the idea is is that as Jesus comes into the world, the lights come on. And you can see, and it's plainly revealed, what is present in this darkened world in contrast to this person who has come in and turned on the light for everybody. And verses 10 and 11 tell us how the light was received when He came. He came into the world that He made, and the world did not recognize Him. It didn't recognize Him. It didn't worship Him. It didn't follow Him. In fact, He came to His very own people. The people whose human descent He shares. And by and large, they did not recognize Him either. He was their promised Messiah. The one, the people to whom John was sent in fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi. And they rejected Him. Not just the world rejected Him, but His own people rejected Him too. And in verse 12, we see a stark contrast. But, that's how that begins. But, some people, when they see the light, they are drawn to Him. They are drawn to Him. They receive Him by believing in His name, and they become children of God. They become children of God. That means, that's John's expression for a person who exercises authentic faith, is someone who receives and believes in the name of Jesus. We sang about believing in the name of Jesus. And the idea of, of that is this. To believe in someone's name is not simply to say, yeah, I believe there was a person called Jesus who existed, who did some things. It's a person's name in the Bible represents 
everything that they are, all that they are as a person. And so to, to believe in the name of Jesus is to put your trust as, of everything you are into everything that He is. To recognize Him as the true light, as who He, who he claims to be, as the one who eternally existed with God in personal relationship, as the one who is the true light, as the one who came into the world uh, and not, was not born into the world, He became incarnate in the world. That God as we'll read later, took on humanity. And He came as the Savior. It's to believe that and to receive it into your own life. And to say, I'm basing my life on this. And John says, if you do that, if you are a person who does that, and notice it's a conditional statement. If you do that then you will become a child of God. Lots of times people are very casual in talking about, well, we're all the children of God. Not according to the Bible, we're not. According to the Bible, you are a child of God if you have believed in Jesus Christ. And to those people, God gave the right to become the children of God. And then he clarifies how this happens, how a person becomes a child of God in verse 13. It says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Now, when it talks about blood there, it's talking about race. It's talking about what people you come from. There were a lot of people in Jesus' day who thought, well, if I'm a Jew, then I'm a child of God. You know, there was a time in our history where people said, well, I'm an American, so obviously I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. Is that true? No. Who are the children of God? Those who have received Jesus into their life by believing in who He is. Those are the children of God. And race, by the way, has absolutely nothing to do with it. Because God is in the process of saving people of every race, of every tribe, of every linguistic group, of every nation, all over the entire world, and always has been. And so, you are not a child of God because you were born of a certain racial group, certain ethnicity, a certain culture. That has nothing to do with it. On top of that, uh, it says, not born of the will of the flesh. And basically that means, you know, it's not born out of the passion between a man and a woman that results in a child. Not born that way. In other words, it's not even something physical. It's not something physical. You can't, you can't say, well, you know, uh, honey, we ought to get together and try to have a baby. And we'll call him the child of God. No. It's not, it, spiritual life and physical life 
are not related to one another. The fact that you are spiritually alive is not something that you can produce by physical means. And it says, also not of the will of man. In other words, it's not something you can decide to do. can't just say, well, you know, I, I really want to be a child of God. So therefore, I'm going to be one. It's not like deciding to run a marathon, you know. I'm going to decide to run a marathon. I'm going to train. I'm going to get, get in shape. I'm going to get my weight down. I'm going to do this, right? That's how people decide they're going to do that. You can't decide you're going to be a child of God that way. What you have to do is put your faith in a person. A person who is the Word of God who has come into the world. The one whom John the Apostle wrote about. The one whom John the Baptist pointed to. The one whose identity we're going to find out about in the next verse. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. If you read verse 14 in John's day, it would have completely rocked you on your heels. Because... The idea that the eternal Word, the person who was with God from the beginning and is God and creates uh, life and is light and makes people the children of God, the idea that that person became flesh would have been scandalous. It would have been, a, it would have been scandalous to Jews because they didn't believe that could happen that God could take on a human nature and dwell among His people. They didn't believe that. And it would have been scandalous to Gentiles because they believed in a radical dualistic universe where they said everything good is in the spiritual realm up here in the world of, of if, you're, if you're talking Plato and Aristotle, the world of forms, the world of ideas up here above us that we can't access, and everything that is lowly and despised and not worth preserving is down here on earth in the world of matter. And, and so the idea that, that God, who inhabits the spiritual realm, would descend into our world and become one of us. They would have said, the heck you say. No way. That is not possible. Don't you know that the material world is evil, and wicked, and dark, and despised, and full of sin? And John would say, of course I know that. That's why He came. Of course I know that. 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, He has added a human nature to His divine nature. We need to be very careful here. John is not saying, I want to avoid some errors on this. John is not saying that the Son of God appeared as a human being while He remained only divine like one of the Greek or Roman myths. You know, if you read Greek or Roman mythology, you know, you'll read stories of, you know, Zeus coming down and, you know, usually chasing some maiden around the woods or whatever, right? And impregnating her and so forth. You know, the Romans had and Greeks had lots of myths like that of gods appearing as people. But that's not what John is saying. John is not saying that the Word appeared like a human. He's saying the Word took on a human nature, added it to His divine nature, and remained fully God and fully human. He's also not saying that He looked like a human, but remained a spirit like the Gnostic Greeks believed. The Gnostics taught, they were called the Docetists, uh, that He seemed human. But when He walked on the, on the beach with His disciples, there were no footprints behind Jesus. Because He was really just a spirit being that looked like He had a body. That's not it either. And He's not saying either that, that God picked out some random man from the right descent physically and called him the son of God it's not what he's saying either he's saying that the eternal son of God added to himself a human nature and became eternally the God man who dwelt with us eternal God dwelt with us he is God in the flesh fully human and fully like us in every respect except for our sin, and at the same time, fully God in one person. Fully human, fully God in one person forever after this moment where the Word became flesh. And he also tells us a couple of other, I think, wildly fascinating things. The word he uses for dwelt there, again, words are important, is the word skanao. Now, you don't need to know that, but it's a a particular word. It literally means tabernacled. Tabernacled among us. Now, if you read your Old Testament, you know what a tabernacle is, right? The tabernacle is this portable tent that the Jews would pack up and move around, and the glory of God rested in the tabernacle. And you could see it. It was this glory cloud that came down and rested on the top of the, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And you could see it. In the daytime, there was a pillar of cloud, and at night, there was a pillar of fire. So you had a night light in the, in the evening, and in, in the daytime, you had shade. And you could see the glory of God present among His people. 
And so in using this word, what John is saying is, is, that, is that God has come down and He is tabernacling with us. That He is dwelling among His people. Just like in the Old Testament, only this time, not in a cloud, but in a person. In a person. And it says, and we beheld His what? Glory. Why is that significant? Because in the Old Testament, they had what? Glory. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, which I'm doing right now with a group of people here from church, I think some of us are struggling through Ezekiel, but if you read the book of Ezekiel, what you understand is that you see this scene of the glory departing from the temple. After they built the tabernacle, they, Solomon built the temple, and then the glory of God descended on the temple. And in the days of Ezekiel, you see the glory depart. And it does not return when they rebuild the temple after they come back from exile. And so what John is telling us is you were looking for the glory of God to return to among His people? Here it is. Here it is. Not present in a building, but in a person. In the person of God Himself dwelling as a human among us. And how do we know that the glory that He has is the glory of God? Because it is glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Remember how I told... Those two words are really important too. Remember how I told you last week that the first five books... I mean, the first five verses of, of this book are parallel to the book of Genesis. They're parallel to the book of Genesis. Because John is telling how, how the coming of the Word is a new creation story. Well, the, these verses about the coming of the Word in grace and truth, tabernacle, glory, God dwelling among His people. Guess what book we're talking now? Exodus. Right? And grace and truth is a summation of what God says about Himself when He reveals Himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Remember, Exodus 32 is the golden calf. Exodus 33... Moses goes back on the mountain to plead for the people that God will not destroy them all for worshiping this golden calf in the wilderness. And he says, God, I want to see Your glory. And he tells him, Moses, you can't see My glory. It will overwhelm you. So I'm going to stick you in a hole in a rock and then you'll see just the afterglow of My glory as it goes by. I'm going to cover you with My hand. So that you cannot see all of my glory. It would be too amazing for you. And he goes by and it says that he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and yet not giving, leaving the guilty unpunished. Punishing to the third and the fourth generation those who hate me. In other words, grace and truth. Mercy 
and judgment based on who you are and how you respond to who God is. Which will you have? Will you love God and receive mercy? Or will you reject Him and receive judgment? Grace and truth revealed together in the person of Jesus Christ. Because men and women, judgment and mercy divide at Jesus. Which you're going to have. And one of the questions being asked in this text is that question, which one is going to be your destiny? Are you going to be, on the one hand, a child of God? Or on the other, are you going to turn away from Him? You know, two, two kinds of insects you might find in your basement, right? You got moths and you got cockroaches. What happens when you turn on the light? Moths fly to it. Cockroaches look for the dark. Which one are you? John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory full of grace and truth. Glory as though the only Son from the Father. Verse 15, a little parenthetical aside, where John takes us back to John the Baptist, and he reminds us that John identified Jesus exactly this way, as the one who has much greater glory than John because he always existed. Remember, Jesus was John the Baptist's younger cousin. And in Jewish society and Jewish culture, the idea was the oldest one is the one with the most glory. Was the idea. So if you were 97 years old, you were much more glorious than if you were 7 years old. And if you were the oldest in a family, then you were the one that everybody else had to revere and respect. And John, it might appear, was older than Jesus. But not according to John. John says, no, he was before me. How far back before? Forever. <laughs> he, nearly, he merely became incarnate here. But he always was. And he's saying, my testimony aligns with John the Baptist's. Because John knew exactly who he was. Verse 16, John tells us, from him we have received grace upon grace. Again, let me clarify what that means. It literally reads grace instead of, or grace replacing grace. The idea is that the grace the incarnate Word brought replaced the earlier grace God had given. You might be scratching your head at this point. In fact, some of you are going, what does that mean? John tells us in verse 17, law came through Moses. Was the law a form of grace? Yes. 
Yes, it was. Because through the law, you could enter into a relationship with God. If you worshiped Israel's God according to the regulations God had given, then you were able, by faith, to come into a relationship with God. So that was a form of grace. But, John is telling us that there was greater grace. A grace that replaced all of the Old Testament system revealed through a person, Jesus Christ. And by the way, that is the first time that we get His name in this book. Isn't that strange? John wants to, to in a sense, back, all, back into who we're talking about. And he does so for 17 verses. I mean, you get 16 verses, and then finally at the very end of 17, you get Jesus Christ. John wants to give us all of this information about Him so that when we see His name, we go, of course, of course, that's who He's talking about. Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate Word. Jesus is the one uh, who, as the Son of God, existed from eternity past and brought all creation into existence and existed with God from before there was time. Jesus is the light and the life of all people. Jesus is the true light who enlightens every person. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses because the grace that He brings replaces that of Moses. Grace and truth come through Him. And He reveals God to us in a way that no one could possibly ever do except the One who came from God and is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ. You know, here's the thing about Old Testament glory. Did God show His glory in the Old Testament? Yes, indeed. When God first revealed Himself to the nation of Israel, what they saw was Him doing a a variety of miracles. They were called the ten plagues. Remember, first you had the the, the Nile turned to blood, and then you had frogs, and then you had gnats, and you had all, all this stuff that just plagued and ruined the nation of, of Egypt. And the whole point of that was to, was to show Pharaoh who really was God. Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. All the gods of Egypt were worshipped uh, by the people of Egypt, and they had gods for every one of these things that God brought a plague on. And he says... This may shock you to discover, but the God of the slaves is actually superior to the God of the sovereign. And he led those people out and he split the ocean for them that they might pass through and he drowned all Pharaoh's army. And then, did that reveal his glory? Oh baby. And then he shows up on the mountain. And do you remember? 
You see fire and thunder and smoke and a voice speaking from the mountain that is so terrifying that the people begged that God might not speak to them anymore. And if you got close to the mountain, you died. If you messed up in the temple or in the tabernacle as you came near to God's presence and His glory, what happened? You died. And so God in the Old Testament had, had tremendous glory, but He could not be approached. You could not get close to Him. Not without dying. Because your sin was such that you could not come into His presence. And the point that John is making here in verse 18 is that Jesus reveals God's glory perfectly. But now you can get close. Now you can get close. You can come right up next to Him. You can touch Him. Think about that. You can touch God. You can eat with Him. You can see Him. You can hear Him. And it's not terrifying. It's inviting. It's appealing. Why do you think God is willing to condescend to that? Why do you think God is willing to descend all the way out of heaven to dwell Think about this as a peasant among the Jews in the first century. There's not even asphalt on the road. Why do you think God was willing to do that? Verse 13 tells us to make as many as would receive Him the children of God. To make as many as would receive Him and believe in His name the children of God. To make you and me and countless millions and billions of other people from every tribe and language and race and tongue and people group and nation to be His children. To be His children. That's why. Let me close for, with a few questions for us to ponder here. And then when you're done thinking, to, it, God can use in your life to spur you as you seek to obey His Word this week. First question. And this is very, very important. I know we've got some visitors and some folks who are new here today. And I want to just ask this question specifically for you. Are you a child of God? You can't be born into it. The fact that you had a relative who was a Methodist once will avail you of nothing. The fact that you uh, are the child of a pastor or that you were born in America 
or that your grandma really, really wants you to be a child of God, that helps you not at all. The only way a person can become a child of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, today is the day. To put your trust in Jesus Christ, to believe in Him, to believe that He is who He claimed to be, and to enter into relationship with Him. You must be born of God. And that only happens through faith in Christ. Second question. John was called to bear witness to the light and he was faithful. Amen. He testified. This is the guy. This is the guy. Guess what, men and women? We have the same calling. To bear witness to the light. To point it out. To say to all the people that we know, all the people that we run into, all the people we work with, all the people in our family, this is the man. This is the Son of God. This is the Redeemer. This is the Messiah. This is the one who saved me from sin and death and the devil and hell. So here's my question. Are you faithful to your calling to do that? All the way to the end of your life, you've got to be faithful to that calling. Teenager, retired person, doesn't matter. Same calling. Point people to Jesus. Last thing. Jesus was full full of grace and truth. This is what a lot of people miss. Full of grace and truth. So in other words, Jesus in reality was not Mr. Rogers Jesus. I know Mr. Rogers isn't on now. It's Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. Don't get me static on it, okay? When I was a kid, we had Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers was the nicest man on TV. I don't think, I mean, you never even saw the guy raise his voice ever. And he was just nice to everybody, and everybody was welcome in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and it was great. And everybody wants life to be that way. And a lot of people want God to be that way, and they think that Jesus is kind of like Mr. Rogers. He's only full of grace, and he never has offered to anybody a calling to reject sin and obey the truth. Jesus is not just full of grace. He is also full of truth. He calls people to reject sin and to obey Him. But He was not nuclear Jesus either. Right? You meet some Christians sometimes who think that's who Jesus is. Just hit people full blast with truth and melt them down and never give them any word of grace. <laughs> right? That isn't true either. Jesus held grace and truth perfectly in Himself. Do you see Jesus as He really is? As you interact with people, is that the Jesus they meet? Full of grace and 
truth? It needs to be. need to strive for that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus is the Word of God who has become flesh among us and who has come into the world that we might become Your children. Father, we know that there's nothing about us that we deserve to be Your children, but we are thankful that You invite us into Your family through faith in Christ. Father, we pray that we might faithfully point to Jesus and be full of grace and truth that many people might meet Him and become a child of God. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.